Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. When General Michael Eric Carilla presented the annual posture statement for his combatant command to congressional committees recently, he chose to open it by looking back to its history. It has been 40 years since Central Command has been carved out of the long-established European and Pacific commands. As Carilla mentioned, the original threats in the 1980s were Soviet and Iranian. Later, in two wars, Saddam Hussein was the arch-villain, with Osama bin Laden drawing the United States into a long involvement in Afghanistan. With the addition of Israel as a valuable partner to CENTCOM, and with Iran and Russia once again of main concern, what seems to lie ahead for CENTCOM? To help us chart both past and future, let us turn to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Dr. Michael Duran, who's a director for uh, at the Center for Middle East Peace and Security at the Hudson Institute and a former senior White House advisor on the Middle East. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. Great to be here. Great having you indeed. Also joining us elsewhere in Washington, D.C. is uh, General or retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, who is a former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. And uh, it's great having you again with us, General. Yeah, thanks a lot. Looking forward to it. Indeed. Also joining me here in the studio in Jerusalem is our TV7 editor-at-large and host of Watchman Talk, Powers in Play, and so much more, Mr. Emil Owen. Emil, give us a broader understanding on the unique composition of CENTCOM. It's placing in one of the most volatile places uh, worldwide. And obviously, at a time when uh, the United States pivots eastward vis-a-vis uh, -vis its challenges or strategic power competition related to China, to what degree is it uh, postured correctly in the face of growing challenges all, ar all around Israel, for that matter, but also all around U.S. forces deployed in this region? So it seems as if uh, CENTCOM uh, was always there, but it wasn't. Um, and the focus uh, during the Cold War was obviously first uh, and foremost on Europe, that is the European command and NATO, um, the uh, uh, commanding general of um, NATO forces was the uh, American commanding general of uh, UCOM, as well as in the Far East, in the Pacific Command, now called Indo-Pacific Command. And the Middle East was left uh, to um, some secondary attention by the European Command, at least uh, in the Persian Gulf, the uh, deputy uh, commanding general of UCOM was usually the guy uh, who looked after it, as was in the uh, crisis uh, over the uh, Shah's um, uh, clash with uh, the uh, rebels who uh, ousted him. And uh, there was a readiness command out of uh, the McDill uh, base in Florida, where uh, CENTCOM is now headquarters. But it took the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the um, Iranian revolution to convince the Reagan administration, earlier the Carter administration, setting up uh, a rapid deployment force, a three-star headquarters, and then uh, CENTCOM, usually under either a Marine four-star or an Army four-star. 
And we are very fortunate to have our two guests here, um, especially since General Kimmet used to be the J5, the Deputy Director for uh, Strategy and Plans at uh, CENTCOM headquarters. Now, originally, the political echelon at uh, the Pentagon did not want Israel to be um, involved in CENTCOM affairs for fear that the Arab countries uh, would be against it. But a couple of years ago, um, it seemed um, convenient for all sides, with the Iranian threat looming so large, to have the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, uh, which always uh, train and plan with the uh, U.S. military, involved um, at CENTCOM. And obviously, the Israeli military is the one organization, in addition to the uh, U.S. forces, with battle experience, with organizational know-how, and with the sort of intelligence needed for operations there. I think it's obviously also interesting uh, for our viewers to know that just uh, a couple of months after the last commander of uh, CENTCOM, General uh, Kenneth McKenzie, uh, retired, he joined you, uh, of course, remotely here in the studio uh, to communicate about the various challenges related to CENTCOM. But uh, let's uh, bring our, our distinguished panelists from Washington uh, to the conversation. General uh, Kim, I'd like to start with you. Looking back 40 years, obviously, you... Uh, uh, were part of a, a substantive role within the composition of CENTCOM during very volatile periods. Uh, but do you see uh, the United States fulfilling its objectives within the composition of Central Command? Well, I really do. Uh, as you said earlier, you talked about this pivot towards Asia, this focus on Europe now with the Russians. I think the only thing that, that changes in the case of CENTCOM would be the amount of resources that they are dedicated on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously, the pull of uh, high specialty items such as uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, that will be pulled to other uh, areas in the main until needed. So while there may be less of a focus uh, on the area of operations, CENTCOM doesn't change. It still has the same number of people. It still has the same operational and planning function. It has the same area of operation that they have to focus on. Uh, while the Pentagon may not be more focused or as focused on the Middle East as it has been in the past, CENTCOM still has that mission, and that mission hasn't changed. With, with that being said, General, and I'd like to follow up on this matter, uh, when uh, General Michael Carrillo, obviously uh, at the hearing uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, provided some insight into the current state of play. He, of course, highlighted the, uh, one of the key missions of CENTCOM to deter the Islamic Republic of Iran at a time when it's obviously engaged in malign behavior, both throughout the Middle East through its proxies, as well uh, in developing its nuclear program and uh, in smuggling weaponry, among others also to Russia uh, in uh, the war, uh, in assisting it uh, to, of course, attack Ukraine and Ukrainian uh, uh, civil infrastructure, among others. He also mentioned, however, the fact that Iran doesn't need, seem to be deterred vis-a-vis -vis the United States these days after, of course, the last time when uh, there was a substantive deterrent uh, following the uh, targeted killing of the RGC Quds Force commander Qasem Soleimani. Uh, is there not enough uh, resolve currently in the political echelons to 
translate into action that would then deter Iran? Yeah, I think that's a good question because, again, the, the capabilities and the authorities in CENTCOM do come from the civilian authority, not the military uh, chain of command. And I would agree with you that the Biden administration is much less focused on uh, perhaps deterring or defending against Iran. For example, it came out in the New York Times that <clears throat> the, there has been a holdback in the response, an additional response to the killing of the American uh, contractor and the wounding of American soldiers in the recent IRGC attack in Syria. Uh, the excuse used by President Biden was that he didn't want this to inflame into uh, a world war, but uh, candidly, I think it probably had more to do with his view that we need to go soft with Iran rather than hard with Iran uh, in order to at least advance the nuclear negotiations, getting them back on track, which has been an absolute failure to this point. Indeed. Uh, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Duran, considering the fact that you've been uh, in a, a key position related to Middle Eastern affairs, uh, also particularly uh, under the Bush administration, a senior White House advisor, uh, a senior member of the National Security Council. Uh, what is going on from uh, your observation currently of the, the incumbent National Security Council looking towards this uh, AOR, the, the area of responsibility, and, and seeing the Islamic Republic time and again target the United States with figure amounting to 78 direct attacks against U.S. forces, which were then, uh, obviously, have both uh, caused harm to U.S. personnel and service members, including the killing of two U.S. contractors over the span of two years. Uh, why is the U.S. so reluctant on uh, putting its foot down currently? Uh, you know that, uh, uh, th thanks for that question. Y you know that number you gave of 78 attacks, um, that's, uh, that is dated very um, carefully not to include the over 300 attacks in, in, in 2020. Um, so if you go back one year before the, the uh, uh, be, before that statistic and you add that in, it's many, many, many more uh, uh, attacks. Um, and the United States, I'm saying the Biden administration has um, actually, uh, I would say, covered up some of the attacks. For example, um, in January uh, of, uh, of last year, there was um, an attack by the Houthis, which is, of course, by the Iranians through the Houthis. Uh, uh, on there, there were two attacks uh, in January on the UAE, um, and one of those included a ballistic missile attack on Adhafra Air Base, where we have an air wing. So, uh, as I read that, that was an Iranian attack on an American uh, uh, on an American position. Um, uh, we shot it down, the ballistic missile, with the uh, THAAD system, um, but, uh, but it was an Iranian attack on Americans. But the White House, a, a statement from Jake Sullivan, defined the attack uh, as a, a Houthi terrorist attack on the UAE. Uh, and, and it pretty much escaped notice in the U.S. that the U.S. had been targeted. It didn't escape notice uh, among the Emiratis. And when you talk to them, 
they're they're livid about it, uh, and they refer to the event as sort of their 9/11. Um, uh, we still don't know exactly all of the sites that were targeted in the um, uh, in the attack. Most of the most of the um, missiles were shot down, or I think all of the missiles were shot down, but some drones um, got through. Uh, and uh, this is uh, it didn't escape notice from the Emiratis or the Saudis. Not just that the Iranians um, uh, attacked and the United States did not counterattack, but that the United States did not even admit publicly that it had come under attack by the Iranians. And so there's a great loss of credibility and I think of confidence in the Americans um, uh, as, the, uh, as the protector. The Iranians have developed um, a capability that the former commander of CENTCOM, General McKenzie, has discussed, uh, I think, um, very clearly and very openly. Um, he calls it overmatch. Uh, ba basically, what the what the Iranians do is they combine together ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and drones in the same strike package. And when you put them all together, uh, the they can overwhelm any missile defense system. I mean, it doesn't mean that. Um, the missile defense system isn't going to hit a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Iranian weapons, but some of the Iranian weapons are going to get through and hit their targets. And what the Iranians have been doing systematically, I think, over the last few years, is uh, showing all of our allies, all of America's allies in the region, that um, all of their uh, critical national infrastructure, all of their military sites are within the range of uh, uh, of Iranian assets, whether coming from Iran itself or from uh, proxies in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and uh, and Yemen. Um, and the United States' uh, answer to this has been uh, inadequate. The, the the U.S. answer has been integrated missile defense, which I, 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 is a very good thing. It's especially a very good thing from the point of view of Israel. Uh, uh, Israel is being integrated into the defensive networks in the um, uh, in the Middle East, and it's having day-to-day -day contact with its uh, uh, with its uh, Arab uh, neighbors on defense matters. This is exciting for the Israelis, and and rightly so. It's a it, it's a very positive step. But the problem here, uh, and General McKinsey makes this very clear, I believe, you cannot counter an offense dominant regime with purely defensive measures. The, uh, and, and that's what the Iranians have created. They have created uh, with, their, with, with this, uh, these disruptive military capacities, the combining of these different systems into a single strike package. They have created a, um, they have created a, a situation whereby, which favors attack, the attacker, them. You cannot write the balance with purely defensive measures. You have to take offensive countermeasures. And what the United States has shown time and time again is it's not willing to carry out offensive countermeasures. And so that's what the effect uh, is, the effect that that's having is it is driving all of our allies to look elsewhere outside of the American defense umbrella for, uh, uh, for uh, security partners, and it's driving them to China. And that's the, that's the threat here. Indeed. The question, of course, is uh, 
Is the Biden administration concerned that its partners and allies would be targeted in the event of such a situation at a time when public opinion, obviously, in the United States is not eager uh, to see the United States enter into a no new Middle East war, whether it wants it or not. Uh, but of course, that's uh, a different question that uh, I'd like uh, uh, to hear our distinguished panelists, obviously, uh, share from their perspective. But I'd like to ask you, Mr. Hogan, uh, Dr. Durant just spoke about Israeli integration into CENTCOM. Obviously, this has been a substantive leap uh, in Israeli cooperation with, uh, with its regional partners, as well as uh, there have been various uh, trainings, uh, exercises. Juniper Oak is one of them uh, just recently on an unprecedented scale. But when you look at the broader sense, the multi-tier aerial defense array that Israel has utilized uh, throughout Israel. Is that something that we're seeing within CENTCOM also being integrated in other countries in the region? So uh, what uh, Michael Durant just said um, has the echoes of going back not 40 years, but 90. The uh, British defense doctrine of the early 1930s, the bomber will always get through, uh, which was the uh, rationale behind uh, a shortage in the British uh, defense budget, and only later on, the buildup of the RAF. Um, and uh, yes, there is this uh, tension between the offensive and the defensive. And uh, Israel, uh, for um, its own purposes, is well defended, especially with the protocols having to do with the Sixth Fleet coming um, uh, towards uh, the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean with uh, its assets and with the uh, uh, radar uh, positioned in Israel looking towards uh, Iran. But the other countries of the Middle East cannot be certain that they uh, will be protected if there is an American or an Israeli strike at Iran and Iran chooses to retaliate against Saudi Arabia or the UAE or any of the uh, uh, lesser shikdoms. Uh, uh, and one, one of the solutions, which uh, especially the US uh, uh, Fifth Fleet under Admiral Brad Cooper came up with, was unmanned um, assets, especially uh, uh, seaborne uh, unmanned uh, uh, surveillance and um, uh, detection. Uh, buoys and and other other uh, sorts of mini vessels, because as you said, there is hardly any public support now in the United States. Uh, so it seems from our vantage point, for another military involvement here, especially when China seems to be the pacing threat. Russia is involved in Ukraine. There is a problem in recruiting and retention of military personnel, especially pilots. The arsenal of de democracy is fast depleting its weapons and munitions because of uh, assistance to uh, the Ukraine. This is all seen from the Middle East as lessening the chance that the US will come to the assistance of any of the countries here if there is a real threat. Indeed. Uh General Kimmett, I'd like to hear your uh, take on it. And uh, also, to what degree do you see the the cooperation between the various commands, uh, considering the fact that right now the Islamic Republic of Iran is looking northward towards Azerbaijan, for instance, uh, as deploying various assets along the border there. Uh, we see uh, the, the various challenges, of course, also on the, the Syrian border, 
uh, between Turkey and, and Syria, uh, where European command on the one hand needs to contend with uh, a, a northern uh, ally, and on the other hand we have uh, CENTCOM in the south dealing with uh, partners on the ground that uh, uh, may be currently engaged in, in counter-terror operations within the mission of uh, inherent resolve. Do you see this as a challenge that should potentially uh, bring about uh, policymakers to consider various borders of uh, the various commands, or is this working right now perfectly? Yeah, well, there's always been some talk about perhaps bringing Turkey into CENCOM, but it really makes no sense because of the overlap between the UCOM commander, the European command commander who has responsibility for that, who also has the joint responsibility as the NATO commander. But I agree to your point, uh, on the borders, particularly between uh, Turkey and the Middle East, there's always been this challenge of coordination between the two uh, combatant commanders, primarily because uh, they fight for resources. Uh, a drone that goes to CENTCOM doesn't go to UCOM, but also because I've noticed that the, the combatant commanders have a tendency to develop uh, uh, clientitis and go native. Uh, and the Turkey-Syria border is a perfect example. Uh, obviously, uh, there is reason for us to negotiate with Turkey to get rid of some of these nettlesome issues between uh, the United States, Turkey, and NATO. But uh, uh, with one of the most nettlesome one being the PKK down in Syria, uh, which is a uh, threat and an actual threat to Turkey at large. But nonetheless, the YPG is being used by uh, CENTCOM. So you have an adversary of a NATO client uh, uh, being used by another combatant commander to, to conduct their mission. But I'd say the real issue is twofold. Number one, uh, the major issue is a fight for resources, which we saw at CENTCOM during the Iraq-Iran war, uh, the, the Iraq and Afghanistan war, uh, where we are trying to get more intelligence, surveillance, drones, and of course the PACOM commander would try to make the argument that he had the greater need. So uh, I think that the, the primary problem of coordination is one of uh, resources, one of border areas. But candidly, that's what, uh, that's what the Pentagon and the Joint Staff is supposed to resolve. So. Um, the hard decisions, the, the, the Solomon-like decisions should be made at the Pentagon, should be made in Washington, D.C., but too often it was my experience that they expected the combatant commanders on the ground to work it out. Considering the fact that uh, the posture review has not prioritized the Middle East, and that's an understatement, uh, to what degree is CENTCOM ready? for everything that is up ahead, considering also the growing involvement of China, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the growing involvement in cooperation between Russia and Iran. And just recently, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad came out and noted that Russia has requested uh, to place additional bases in Syria, something that will obviously, at a time when the Russians are conducting uh, various um, hostile activities uh, towards the Americans, uh, uh, which, again, is an understatement when it comes to uh, various uh, uh, proximity, deconfliction uh, uh, breaches that have been made in recent weeks. Uh, is this a time for the U.S. to consider re-diverting some of those resources to the region? Well, that's a great thing about modern technology. It is divertible very rapidly. 
and that seems to be the the major argument uh, being used for putting the assets up in Yukon, fully knowing that if, say, for example, 10 to 15 Americans were killed in Syria, uh, yes, the attention would focus like a laser beam back into the Middle East and we could get those resources down there. Uh, 40 years ago, when we had the, the USER, United States Army Europe, promise to get 10 divisions in 10 days uh, into Europe to defend against the Soviet invasion, uh, nobody believed that. Everybody realized that there was no way to physically move 10 divisions that quickly into Europe. Uh, but the nature of the weapon systems that we would use in a major conflict in the Middle East, uh, that is equipment that can be rapidly brought in uh, to the region or candidly in, in Nellis Air Force Base uh, who are running the drones. Uh, they just tell those drones to take a hard right and head down south in a very, very rapid way. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty confident that in terms of getting assets into the region in a uh, quick enough time period, except for troops on the ground, I think we can do that fairly quickly. I think General uh, Milley just recently noted about 30 days before that something like that could happen. Um, Dr. Duran, I'd like to hear your point on this. You have roughly two minutes left, so uh, we need to keep it short. The problem, as, uh, as Mark said, it, the problem isn't so much um, uh, resources as it is conception. And I think the, the problem in the Biden administration is that they have yet to think through uh, the consequences of a Russian, Iranian, and Chinese alliance against the United States uh, in the Middle East. I don't think they believe that it exists. Uh, personally, I, uh, I do. We certainly see that there's a Russian-Iranian alliance started in Syria, now, it's, uh, now, now it extends to Ukraine. They're building uh, weapons together. So we need to think about the, um, the, this, this uh, triangular alliance between Beijing, Moscow, and Iran as the threat. And we have to see that they are working together um, uh, uh, you know, in coordination, let's say in parallel, to oust the United States eventually from the, from the Middle East. And we need to react accordingly. Indeed. Mr. Uh, just following up on uh, General Kimmett's uh, uh, remarks, uh, during the Cold War, there was this um, regular, almost annual exercise reforger, return of forces to Germany, uh, which, of course, trained the uh, forces, but also signaled to the Soviets that uh, if the balloon um, uh, was up, then forces can come from the continental United States. There is a need to do it in the Middle East. You may call it reforcement or whatever, but to show the area and the Iranians that you can deploy brigades, if not divisions, very quickly, and they can link up with the uh, material which has been uh, uh, prepositioned here. So having a, a joint exercise of the U.S. Navy 5th Command together with uh, the French and uh, the Italians is not enough uh, to uh, accommodate the, the risk of uh, joint Russian-Iranian-Chinese well, one? That, that's a good start, but you need those uh, heavy uh, lift assets to bring over the 82nd Airborne, the 101st, and the Marines. Indeed. Well, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for today, so I'd like to thank General Kimmett, uh, as well as Dr. Duran, for being uh, part of today's panel. I'd like also to thank uh, our TV7 editor-at-large, Mr. Amir Oren, and all of you at home as well. Until next time, shalom.
Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.